China's regulatory approach to AI governance. What is it and what's driving it? To discuss, I have on again Matt Sheehan, who I may be taking the belt from none other than Chris Miller today on China Talk with his fourth or fifth appearance on the podcast. It's too, too, too many years of the in the hopper at this point. Um, excited to have uh, Matt from Carnegie back on the show. Uh, the occasion is the release of the new Chinese AI governance regula regulations, which very conveniently came out just as uh, the first part of his new series on uh, reverse engineering Chinese AI governance released. And I thought it was an excellent paper. So here we are to talk about it. Matt, back to China Talk. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me back. Uh, honored and humbled to uh, take the belt. Let's start macro. What is driving China's approach to AI governance? The core driver is concern over control of information. Like the, the three regulations that they've put out so far, if you kind of trace each of them to their root and to the, the core concern of the Chinese Communist Party, it's, it's always control over information. In some cases, that's dissemination of information. In some cases, that's creation of content, creation of information. So, you know, the first thing that it put out was the regulation on recommendation algorithms. That was very much driven because they didn't like the way that certain Chinese news apps or social media apps were using personalized recommendation to disseminate content. You know, they liked the old days when, uh, you know, the People's Daily or uh, CCTV or eventually websites were able to essentially rank what were the most important stories of the day, what are people going to see the most of. And when recommendation algorithms started personalizing that content for each person, um, they got nervous about that. So that drove recommendation algorithms. The next one was deep synthesis, which was really rooted in their concern over deep fakes, pretty clear what the information concerns there are. And most recently, generative AI, which again, kind of builds on the uh, concern over deep fakes, but sort of transfer that to the realm of text rather than like images and audio. So that's that's really what like at the center of all these things. But as each of the regulations makes its way through China's uh, intellectual environment, through its companies and then through its bureaucracy, you see all these other concerns kind of tacked on. So concerns over protection of workers or concerns over monopolistic behaviors. Um, and, you know, some similar concerns to what we have in the West around uh, sort of bias, discrimination, transparency, stuff like that. Yeah. So the, the way you lay out in the piece is you have an overriding goal to shape the technology so it serves the CCP's agenda, particularly for information control. I would posit, and I think it's, it's a fair characterization that you've made uh, so far of what you've seen, is that if AI is going to be a big, as big a deal as it has the potential to, and you know, uh, multiple percentage points of GDP growth coming from it and whatnot, um, the sort of Evan Feinigenbaum China techno warrior um, dynamic of this is going to come much to much more to the fore. When she in the past has talked about AI and strategic emerging technologies, it's not generally on the sort of like information control stuff. And yes, that's something he's focused on and scared about. But I think there's like another piece of this and the shoe maybe hasn't really dropped yet because the technology isn't matured or it isn't as deep enough into the into the economy. But my my guess, and I'm curious for your take on this, Matt, is like, what would it take for the Chinese government to start to reframe AI as this like incredible opportunity and potentially society shaping thing? And, you know, how do you think that the system, um, you know, which to date has been mostly focused on 
uh, you know, fighting the last war um, with, you know, bike dance and, and deep fakes and making sure people read the right news, um, you know, how it may transition to uh, trying to grapple with and, and harness the power of what is like a, you know, industrial revolution scale t- technology. Yeah, I think you're you're pointing at the right thing. And we're actually kind of right at that turning point right now, I think. And that basically happened in between the draft generative AI regulation and the final one, or what they call the interim uh, regulation as of July. So the draft that came out in April was kind of their um, almost knee-jerk response to the rise of ChatGPT and the fear that you know these models are going to be spewing uh, information that can't be controlled. They might be saying the wrong things, and they got very concerned about that. And the the draft regulation was very harsh. It set like almost impossibly high standards for sort of political correctness of the model. All of the training data had to be, you know, uh, true and accurate, and all of the outputs had to be true and accurate, which is just not possible with large language models today. And what you saw after that was a very sort of public debate within China about what to do with that draft regulation. You saw a lot of pushback from other parts of society and from Chinese tech policy academics around this, saying that the draft regulation was too harsh, it was going to stifle sort of the domestic industry, and it needed to be changed in a few specific ways. And when the final version came out in July, it basically swung to the other side of the of the spectrum. You know, if you could think of it as there's always going to be this trade-off between uh, sort of control and development, they went from very heavy on control in the draft to pretty heavy on development and much lighter on control in the final. And so you see this in specific changes where they don't say, you know, the, the outputs have to be true and accurate. They say you have to, you know, adopt effective measures to try to increase the accuracy of the outputs. So they way lowered the compliance requirements. They shrunk the scope of it a bunch to say, you know, research and development is totally outside the scope of this. You can do a lot of stuff in industry. Um, it's only when you make sort of public facing generative AI that you have to abide by these rules. And other than those loose things, you also saw the addition of a bunch of provisions that specifically say, hey, generative AI is important. We want to support its development. We want to push it in these ways. And it's kind of exemplified in some ways by the fact that the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, became the second signatory on the final uh, version. With all of China's algorithm and AI regulations, the the draft has come out from the Cyberspace Administration of China, the CAC, which is always a very sort of content control focused organization. And then we put the final, they add some other organizations, maybe it's Ministry of Science and Technology or Public Security. And the the order of those ministries matters um, somewhat in terms of like the prioritization of inputs. And the generative AI final rules were the first time that the National Development and Reform Commission added itself to an AI regulation and put itself second, which I think signifies the shift that they're saying, hey, um, yes, control over information, very important, but both for sort of domestic economic reasons, for international competition reasons, we want to develop this industry and we don't want to smother it with um, sort of an extreme or unrealistic focus on controlling information. Yeah. And so I think until these new draft regulations came out, the response was relatively predictable, right? It's like, of course, the CCP is going to be freaked out by this thing that can spit out all these, uh, you know, all these images of, of Winnie the Pooh and and Chinese political leaders or whatever. Like, of course, they're going to be sort of like worried about this new variable in an information space that they've invested an incredible amount 
of um of uh of money into and i think there was this west this narrative in the west which i was a party to i wrote like a, a piece which i would would um uh, you know maybe retract today um you know talking about how um this may be a sort of intellectual hurdle which might be too difficult for chinese regulators to sort of see past that like there's more to this than just um you know remin or bao columnists having new competitors and um mm. you know th th there's a lot more that china uh, that sort of the Chinese government needs to grapple with in a more positivist way if they're going to try to maximize for all the other goals that she and the CCP more broadly have um, when it comes to sort of, you know, economic development and, and international competition and so have you. So so it, it's it's a fascinating turn that um, you point out of these new regulations, because, like, it seems we're entering the world in which um, there really is going to be this grand race and nothing is going to stop it. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe thoughts on uh, th th thoughts on that, that Matt, like well, what, what should we take from them embracing the, the this new worldview that you, um, uh, that you articulated in the new regulations? I mean, I think the, the sort of initial reaction that you framed up was very like legitimate and grounded in, you know, in very good reasons. Um, like you, you rarely go wrong when you're betting on like the CCP sort of prioritizing control. That's especially under Xi, this has really been like the MO and, you know, you could trace it back however far you want or in whichever field you want. Um, but in tech specifically, since sort of the tech crackdown beginning in like 2020 or so, they, they've been very serious about this and they haven't, uh, they, they've always leaned in that direction. I think them switching their lean here has a few sort of signals built into it. I mean, one is what you're talking about, just like a broader realization of uh, the power of AI. There's another economic component in that the Chinese economy by all accounts is in very bad shape and they're getting um, increasingly worried about that. And like, the, I think literally the day before they released the final generative AI regulations, they had another sort of big uh, public embrace of the platform technology company. I mean, it is weird, Matt, the sort of like toxic relationship dynamic that has developed between these private sector technology companies and the, and the Chinese state. Because, you know, five years ago and even still to this day, there are lots of people who are in this broader ecosystem who have disappeared. And, you know, you've had enormous chunks of the market capitalizations of a lot of these companies been sort of eviscerated by these regulators and these sort of uh, ministers who are now trying to be buddy buddy and say, hey, you know, you should invest and like, you know, the future's the future's bright for you in, in, in China. And, you know, the, what, what are the what are the CEOs of these companies going to do? Of course, they're going to say, yes, please, sir. May I have another? Um, uh, even if, you know, maybe in their heart of hearts, they're still a little scarred um, by what they've had to um, uh, uh, go through since um, uh, since, I guess, 2017. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And like the, yeah, the companies basically don't have a choice. You know, they, obviously some individual CEOs and founders have kind of voted with their feet in that even before they got, you know, in trouble themselves, they sold their stake and they moved to Singapore and all that kind of stuff. But for, you know, the main bulk of Alibaba's operations, it's just that, you know, the, they make their money in mainland China primarily, and they will have to just, they, they will just have to sort of stick with it and deal with what the government is willing to give them. I think it's it's kind of interesting from the government's perspective in that, you know, I would I would hesitate to say it's a sign of um, 
weakness or a show of sort of contrition in any way by the government. But it it is a slight deviation from, I'd say, she's long term MO of like, you know, never compromise, never apologize, uh, just do exactly what you want to do at all times. And I think it could be a sign of sort of how dire the the economic fundamentals appear to be. It could be a bunch of different factors. But I think that fed into the re-embrace of the platform economy. I think it fled into the generative AI sort of final rules being much softer. Um, you know, that's from kind of an economic perspective. I think what you're alluding to of like, you know, the great race, great game, we all understand the power of the technology. I think it's still something of an open question how the Chinese government thinks about AI as essentially like transformative technology or AGI, artificial general intelligence, all that stuff. It's still something where while they've started to use the term uh, artificial general intelligence, or maybe you could call that general purpose AI, um, they started to use that in official circles. In talking to people over there, you still get the sense that they they are thinking of it primarily in a like a what can you do for me today kind of way. Like what can more general AI systems do to feed into the economy? Whereas in the US, we obviously have our sort of contingent that's uh, primarily in sort of the, the big AI labs that's very focused on, you know, humongously civilizationally transformative AI. It's a little bit unclear how much of that has seeped into the Chinese political consciousness. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think the the sort of, you know, when you see uh, folks in the AI safety community being like, we need to have a dialogue with China about, you know, risk to humanity. It's like they're not on that wavelength yet. And maybe they will. Well, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, Matt, like, like, what's your what's your take on the potential for any sort of like China world's? AI coordination and, you know, what, 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 what even like makes sense if we were, um, I guess I can take this in a, on a, I'll take this in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, maybe a, a couple, a couple different thoughts on that. You know, one is, um, you know, how, how present is this line of thinking or these strands of thinking within China, how present are say existential risk concerns or maybe catastrophic risk concerns within Chinese AI community. They're definitely there. Some people share them. Some of the technical people, especially those who have been very sort of exposed to or embedded in the U.S. tech ecosystem, are familiar with them. Um, but it's it's nowhere near the sort of same prominence or centrality that it is within a lot of the U.S. or, say, uh, U.K. leading AI labs. Um, in terms of the potential for coordination or collaboration or dialogue, it's in some ways I'm having to kind of update my thinking on this because things are moving so quickly and the kind of the, the push for say international coordination on frontier AI models is kind of going very quickly. And there is a, a push to loop China into that by some, um, which I think I'm, I'm broadly supportive of, but I'd say my sort of baseline is the, the best way to ensure that China is doing things safely in AI is to have those ideas, um, emerge and gain traction within China, not to sort of impose them through a new uh, international regulatory body where we set all the rules and you just have to agree to these restrictions, but to try to communicate with sort of maybe plant seeds or uh, encourage dialogue that allows these ideas to foster and to grow within China's sort of policy environment or technical environment. I think that's there is still a lot of potential there, like China, both China's regulators and China's tech community is both 
very, very interested and invested in what the rest of the world is doing, what the rest of the world is thinking on frontier AI. And I think that's, that's a form of, of leverage that can be used to try to sort of get some good ideas in the mix there. No guarantees, but I think it might be our best bet. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, so my sort of happiest version of this, if what the world needs to survive is China doing, I don't know, good stuff around AI safety is climate change. And, you know, you had a arc over the past 15 years where China went from, you know, the worst, you know, the worst emitter on the planet to a country that, you know, while yes, it signed up to cop and that was important, but like it, it signed up to cop because Xi Jinping convinced himself that climate change was really a problem um, and that China had a real opportunity in investing and in solutions to it. Um, and the, the, the idea that like, like AI safety will be traded for other chits in the U S China relationship strikes me as, as rather far-fetched. Um, but if the sort of, you know, bottom up, like this is a world movement that like everyone agrees is a big deal, um, type of dynamic that happened over climate for climate change in the 20th century can be replicated with artificial intelligence that strikes me, strikes me as a like slightly more plausible scenario than like a world government, um, you know, Niels Bohr style to sort of um, uh, impose on two strategic adversaries like a, um, uh, you know, a global compute regulation uh, framework or what have you. Yeah, I, I think. And in, with climate change, you also saw like the evolution in China's sort of response to the rest of the world. I, I think when I was in Beijing in 2008, one of the first like headlines I remember reading was about how climate change, you know, in a Chinese newspaper was about how climate change was like a global conspiracy to hold China's development down. You know, the rest of the world polluted and now they're using this to hold us back. And you can imagine a very similar dynamic uh, in thinking about AI development. And, you know, China was able to maybe organically and with a lot of communication and engagement um, from different actors, maybe not the U.S. federal government, but like California, Jerry Brown, different um, sort of NGOs and private sector actors, they were, they did eventually kind of evolve their thinking on it, you know, in, in a lot of ways out of self-interest, but a self-interest that also ends up serving um, the greater good. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that sort of AI safety folks don't understand is like the conspiratorial mindset. Um, and uh, exactly what you said, Matt, like the idea that like we should, we should like have full global transparency into compute governance while at the same time you guys are doing export controls is like the recipe for a, um, uh, you know, a Chinese uh, viral like WeChat blogger to like take the EA community and turn it into like some, some like grand CIA funded conspiracy or what have you. But yeah, but like that doesn't serve anyone. And I think is, is not particularly helpful. Um, but I, what I want to focus on, um, which I think is one of the more interesting parts of, of, um, your paper and your broader research agenda is sort of the um, untangling like how ideas around art regulating artificial intelligence kind of like get into the broader 
Chinese political bloodstream. Um, so maybe maybe start off with like your your how you like arrived at this research uh, methodology and the mental mental model, and then maybe run run us through one or two case studies of of um, uh, something like going from like the ether of discussion into actual policy documents. Sure. Yeah. The um, so the the broader kind of framework that I'm putting it under, or the name of this series of reports I'm doing, is reverse engineering Chinese AI governance. So the idea is look at a sort of final governance, uh, final regulation, a final piece of governance, and uh, identify the pieces in it that are potentially interesting or useful, and then work backwards and try to reverse engineer where did those ideas come from? Can we trace them backwards through state media, through um, think tank reports, through sort of uh, public outcry or prominent issues that kind of bubbled up within the Chinese, uh, the Chinese internet or the Chinese public discussion. And, you know, the, if we kind of pull enough of those reverse engineered strands together, maybe we have a working model of how China makes AI governance policy or AI regulatory policy. So that's the goal. You know, I've had this idea for a while. I've, I always wanted to trace, you know, we're, we're, trace a policy development from its absolute roots to when it gets crystallized in a piece of policy, then back down to how it's implemented, sort of the full like life cycle of regulation. And with the AI governance initiatives, I, you know, it's a bit like exploratory and just trying to find unique pieces of the regulation that show promise in terms of working backwards and then trace those as far as we can get them. I just want to thank whoever your funder is for this work, for investing in this type of research um because it is so rare um uh to sort of have the venn diagram of someone like you who has the sort of bureaucratic chinese background has the language skills and has a willingness to do like god's work of um sort of taking keyword searches and just reading a ton of stuff and trying to like you know put the strands together because i think what um comes out of that is a much more sophisticated understanding of China, not as this monolith, but as the, but of the government as this sort of like permeable ecosystem where a lot more things than just like, you know, Xi Jinping thought um, end up influencing it. And not to say that Xi Jinping thought isn't important, but um, uh, I think in this work and, and, and by looking at uh, Chinese governance through this lens, you really um, taught uh, myself and lots of other players in this space about um, you know, what people should be looking at if they want to understand what's going to happen on the, on the horizon. So anyways, sorry to interrupt you with that. Let's, um, uh, uh, let's, let's continue the story. No. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I, I felt very lucky to like have the sort of runway to invest in doing this work. Cause yeah, it was very labor intensive, very time intensive, a lot of just trawling through state media, trawling through uh, sort of public, uh, you know, public outcry over events. And then how did those terms evolve over time? So maybe, yeah, it's probably best illustrated with like a couple of specific things. And I'll use two that went into the first regulation, the recommendation algorithm regulation. So this final regulation, it was the draft came out in 2021. It was finalized, yeah, at the very end of 2021. And it sort of kicked off this run of three regulations targeting algorithms and AI. And I guess I'll, I'll trace two things backwards. I mean, one, just like why recommendation algorithms? They're maybe the most common use of AI globally or on the internet, but they're also, yeah, it, it's, it's a bit random. Uh, it's, there are not many other governments or other organizations that think of recommendation algorithms as your first and foremost thing that you wanna regulate. 
And so what I did is I took the, the term that they use, so algorithmic recommendation. And I looked back through um, an archive of Chinese state media uh, to find when did this first appear in state media and what were they talking about at the time. And there's a pretty clear like moment when it kicks off and it's in uh, mid 2017. So shortly after the national AI plan comes out, the People's Daily has uh, three consecutive days of, of articles or of sort of editorials that are just laying into recommendation algorithms and all of the kind of ills that they bring to society and the information ecosystem. And in each of the articles, they are, uh, I think, explicitly referring to Toutiao, um, which was the ByteDance news app um, that had been popular at that point in time. And they sort of in the first editorial, they talk about how, you know, this is leading to like vulgarization of content and um, having all these, Ill, you know, sort of societal ills. But as you kind of read, not just those editorials, but then the sort of think tank reports or the other articles that came on state media around that time or afterwards, it's clear their concern is we're losing control over the ability to like prioritize news and information content for people. We used to be able to say like, hey, every website, you have your top five articles of the day and we're telling you what the top five articles of the day are. And when it's getting personalized, pushed out to people, it, uh, you know, they lose that control. And so that's kind of the spark, but that's all the way back in 2017. It's almost four full years before the final regulation comes out. And we basically, over the next three years, we watched this kind of get molded into, from a sort of a vague, like, dis-ease with recommendation algorithms into a set of technical standards and a set of policy positions. And this kind of plays out largely through this sort of government-adjacent think tank and technical organization apparatus. So this is organizations like CAICT, Xintongyuan, which is like a very important and influential Chinese technical think tank, and the Chinese AI Industry Alliance. Groups like that that would sort of first issue like position papers on what we think the problems are with recommendation algorithms and how they sort of lead to unsafe content. And then they started to do other things like develop sort of technical standards or industry working groups around like how can we sort of mitigate these issues. Um, once that developed to a certain point, it basically made it into a central committee document. There was a 20, December 2020 document from the central committee that was like a five-year roadmap for rule of law kind of saying like what do we want to deal with what issues do we want to deal with from a legal perspective over the next five years and in that document they specific the two sort of ai related applications they called out were recommendation algorithms and deep fakes once that once it's kind of worked its way up to the central committee then that's kind of empowers the cac and other organizations to go back to work shaping the actual actual regulation that came together over the next year and eventually a draft in 2021, the final at the end of the year. So that's kind of like, you know, that's like the core concern of the regulation. That's where a lot of the, that's the motivator in a lot of ways. And that's what a lot of it's focused on. But you also saw these other things get incorporated into it over the course of that drafting. So I think the most interesting one is this, again, somewhat like random provision in there, which is about protecting workers from scheduling algorithms. You know, if, if you use a scheduling algorithm or an algorithm to decide like worker pay, you need to protect the rights and interests of workers and you need to sort of give them sufficient uh, time and breaks and stuff like that. And that's another one where you can actually trace it back quite clearly to 
a, uh, a viral magazine article that was called Delivery Drivers Trapped in the System. It was in Renu, which is like a Chinese uh, magazine, non-state media. And it was this blockbuster No, it is, it is state media. It, it actually, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's like uh, under the People's Daily, actually. Oh, there you go. I, <laughs> very fun fact. But, but no, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's an important point though, right? Because it's a, um, this is sort of like, people think of the system as a monolith, but on lots of different policy topics, um, there are ways in which individuals or like concerned people can sort of influence and educate the system. Right. And, you know, like a journalist, you know, like a journalist and their editor at a state-owned media company decided that, um, you know, raising the plight of a, um, uh, you know, of a, of a, of a, of, you know, temporary workers was sort of an okay enough within the sort of like universe of things that you could talk about publicly that it then, you know, did the same thing that, happens in news in the west where there's like a big a big viral article and then politicians are like oh shit we got to do something about it and i think it's really important for folks to understand that that dynamic you know not on everything but on certain topics um, particularly when it comes to like technology and society is a dynamic that can absolutely um play out in china as well as in the west yeah yeah absolutely and like ren wu's a it's a at times it can be kind of an edgy newspaper. Like they published an interview with, uh, an early COVID doctor, maybe even a, not, not Li Wenliang, but a, some, uh, an interview with a, I think a Wuhan doctor that was pretty critical of like COVID responses that eventually sort of got censored. So they have an ability to push the line a little bit, but I think like you're saying in this case, they were actually in a, as much as the article is kind of calling out social problems and it's calling out tech companies. They did it in an environment where it was okay to do that. It's at a time when regulators are okay with state media sort of uh, criticizing uh, Chinese tech companies in a way that they might not have been comfortable with, say, four or five years earlier when these were still maybe the darlings of uh, of the new economy under you know Xi and Li Keqiang and stuff like that. So it happens within a, a policy environment that's sort of accepting of that type of criticism. And... The, the journalists behind it, you know, did a pretty amazing job with the article, but they were also building on the work of like a lot of Chinese academics. So these Chinese sociologists of labor who had been doing like deep research on the interface between algorithms and workers for years. And those Chinese sociologists are in turn kind of in conversation with U.S. sociologists who write about algorithms and labor and they're building on their work. So you see all these different kind of like intellectual strands that go into just that article. And when it sort of burst onto the scene, became super viral, it immediately led to some responses. So within, I think, a couple of days, CCTV was sort of uh, airing segments in which the anchors were directly criticizing the platform companies and talking about how we had to increase regulation in this area. Um, the Eventually, the state administration market regulation was like calling these companies in and kind of criticizing them and telling them they had to do better on this. And within a year, you see this worked first into kind of like a smaller um, regulatory document from state administration, market regulation and CAC. And eventually it becomes a full provision within the recommendation algorithm regulation. And so we almost have like these are kind of two sides of the same or opposite sides of the spectrum in the sense that one is like core, uh, you know, party information control concern 
that starts with just a focus on recommendation algorithms. And you have these more sort of socially or intellectually driven contributions that do end up making their way into regulations just from a slightly different route. Um, there are plenty more examples of this, like uh, over the course of drafting, they also incorporated provisions about how you can't use your recommendation algorithms to reinforce uh, monopolies or you can't use it for excessive price discrimination. That's very much tied to like the sort of anti-monopoly concerns of the time rather than the original recommendation algorithm concerns. But it all, you know, this all kind of gets turned into one sausage, which is the, the final regulation. And I think we can learn a lot from that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this fascinating interplay and you, you set up this like mental model of the, um, the policy funnel of China's AI governance. And it's like, yeah, like you're not, you're not going to be writing an article talking about how China needs a color revolution. But, um, if there is sort of, if something is bubbling up of like people being upset with technology and, uh, you know, someone writes one article and it isn't taken down, then the sort of window for all of these non-state or like state adjacent actors like um, like Ren Wu, who it's not the People's Daily, it's the Renmin uh, Chuban She, the like People's Publishing House, which was like, you know, founded by Mao. It's some state thing, whatever. We can dig into it later. Um, or like, you know, the Tencent think tank that's like trying to add, you know, do some like government relations thing to like screw over their competitors or whatever. Like there are these there are so many policy topics in China, which are not like, it's not like the state council is like the first and last word on, uh, or, you know, Xi Jinping in particular is not the first and last word on these sorts of things. And so, yeah, he'll like set the direction maybe, um, but it is much more emergent, like the policy creation process, process in China, it's not the same as the West, but it is, it does have this sort of like similar emergent quality and i think the sort of work that you're doing here on um uh, on ai regulation is really important both to sort of surface the the specifics of what's happening in ai but also illustrate for other folks um thinking about lots of other different topics that you know maybe military might be an exception but like pretty much everything else that isn't like core national security stuff um is going to have some of this really interesting sort of like public government back and forth and, and give and take, which I don't think the rest of the world uh, pays enough attention to. And it's the sort of thing you really need to stare at if you actually want to understand how China works. Yeah, I think like the, you know, how much scope there is for that public input and public debate, and then also sort of how public that is, as opposed to behind closed doors, obviously varies a lot by sort of uh, issue area. So like you're saying, yeah, military issues, that's not really the the realm of like online public discourse. And that's that's not going to be the primary driver of anything. But AI regulation, even though it's, you know, it's close to sort of AI development, which you could say is a maybe a sensitive or a national geopolitical issue, the actual question of how do you regulate the technology is still a pretty sort of open debate over there. It's not seen as so overtly political that we kind of can't discuss it. They're very much like looking for good ideas in this area. And they the government has to lean very heavily on uh, both sort of like legal and policy academics and also on sort of technical uh, advisors for these these sort of advisory committees that work with the CAC. And so you see this happen, like there's a little bit more space. There aren't these sort of entrenched interests. It's not like 
you know, Baidu has been like digging in and like, uh, you know, as a state owned enterprise, it's been like digging trenches to like win this specific policy battle for 20 years. It's all happening very new, very quickly. And so I think there's just a lot more space right now for these kind of debates. I will say, though, um, I think it was a few years ago, there was this debate in China around its relationship to North Korea. Um, and it was it was like I think David Ownby translated a lot of stuff on reading the Chinese dream. But, um, you know, you saw and, and it's sort of like with something that's more sensitive, like you really need to be the right person to be able to express that opinion. So it's like the 72 year old who like used to be in the ministry or like the tenured bait operative professor who's like half retired or whatever. They're the ones who can write, you know, the 5000 word article saying like, you know, the DPRA is a mess. Like, why are we friends with these guys anymore? Like, what are we even doing here? Um, but you'd be surprised if you sort of know where to look and, you know, you, you, you sort of see the wind, like as soon as there's like a, like a bit of a crack of a window open and maybe that came from a, um, uh, you know, that didn't necessarily come from like a she public pronouncement, but maybe that was something that was like discussed as like, now we're going to have a little discussion about this guys. And you know, the, the, the sort of, when it comes to those things, like there's signaling going on from Beijing to somewhere like Pyongyang saying like, look, we're, we're, we're comfortable exploring these other options, but um, it's just like the coolest. I, I just think like you learn the most about China when you sort of look at um, the opening and then the closing of these policy um, debates across a lot of different dimensions, because it really shows you, it really gives you like at least a window into how, um, how the system ultimately ends up deciding things. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to read like a reverse engineering of, you know, China's, uh, DPRK policy or a reverse engineering of their like Taiwan policy because I those are areas where I don't know where to look for the kind of influential voices and a lot of what I was trying to do with this report was like figure out where to look and then sort of give people a little bit of a shortcut so that they can uh, follow along more easily you know as you were reading through all this stuff Matt were there any sort of uh, any like new ideas that you just thought were like like what was like surprising to you uh, about, you know, these, these different, um, uh, uh, thinkers or researchers? Um, I guess when the generative AI regulation sort of, when the draft debuted, I was pretty surprised at how public the debate was. That's not sort of a specific idea within it, but I, a lot of these people, they have, you know, the influential people have private channels to do this stuff. They have, I think they usually call it join ball, like when you make a sort of a direct report uh, within the system, not outside of the system. And I think that's oftentimes how much of this goes down. And I was kind of surprised in the generative AI one that even people who have all of those sort of private channels were actually airing their sort of thoughts in much more public forums. They were publishing articles saying like, hey, here's the five changes that we think need to be made to this regulation. And then sort of publishing that and debating it in public. So I think that the, the, the choice to channel some of that through the public sphere as opposed to purely through the private sphere was one thing that um, surprised me. I think I'm, I'd say somewhat continually impressed by how um, knowledgeable a lot of these Chinese academics or policy analysts are about what is going on in Europe and in the US, like in some cases, I would get into conversations with, with these people and they would ask something about the US and I, it would just kind of become immediately clear to me that they knew far more about USAI policy than I did. And that um, that attention to what's going on internationally and then the, the ways that they will try to kind of um, 
localize those ideas uh, for, you know, working within the Chinese context, I think is interesting. We see some of that in relation to the, the generative AI regulations where I think they, they, they are looking at how the EU is going to deal with general purpose AI systems and trying to see if there's some sort of alignment there with tiered risk and all these different things. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of impressed by like the quality of, of Chinese scholarship in those areas and how much more like internationally aware they are than, than sometimes uh, we are or I am. All we have is Matt Sheehan and friends versus like entire, you know, divisions of universities dedicated to analyzing American technology policy. Um, it's a, uh, uh, it, maybe this is like the other lesson for the AI, the, the AI safety folks is like, if you build it in the U S and the EU and the rest of the world, like that example will be very powerful um, for the sort of like Chinese, you know, broader state policy ecosystem. If they see what America and the rest of the world is doing in AI and it is it, it the sort of restrictions that you put on from a safety, you know, be that sort of societal or like AGI related risk perspective that are still allowing these companies to like gain the, you know, economic technological benefits of it um, without necessarily sort of shutting everything down. If you can, if you can get that balance and then sort of have an example to then come back to the Chinese in 2027 and say, Hey, look, like, as long as you do this, that, and the other thing, um, and you can do it in a voluntary way. It doesn't have to be some like invasive international regulatory regime or whatever. Um, but it'll work out for you guys. Um, and um, here, look, it's working out for us. Like that is that is almost more powerful than, um, you know, pushing Xi and Biden to sit down and like hash out some agreement. Yeah, I think it's a tricky thing to talk about because we, in a lot of ways, like the US-China or the China sort of policy debate has swung very far to the side of like, look, China's going to do whatever it wants. Like, we, we can't force them to do anything. They're never going to change, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to say, like, you know, we can push China to or we can influence China by, like, telling them what to do. But there's tons and tons of sort of influence by osmosis or influence by, I don't want to say imitation. That maybe is a little bit too direct. It's not like they're trying to necessarily imitate all these things. But they're taking they're taking it on board. They're like looking at how this debate is playing out in other countries. They're drawing on ideas that they think are useful. And the more sort of mature and uh, credible these debates or even these like policy interventions are in the U.S., in Europe and elsewhere, the more likely that's going to be kind of brought on board by China and not necessarily in the way where we tell them what to do. But in, in the case that they kind of feel that they are taking this idea on themselves and developing it and applying it in their own way. I think you're right. Um, you just, uh, you just took a trip to Beijing, Matt. Um, I think you're the, my first guest who's, um, uh, who's, uh, gone there and back post, uh, post COVID. What was it like? It was great. I was, uh, yeah, I was so, so happy to be back. Uh, you know, thanks to, uh, Scott Kennedy and the good folks at, uh, CSIS for organizing this kind of track to dialogue of um, uh, rebuilding scholarly exchange. So we got, you know, from a work perspective, got uh, to sit down and meet with a ton of great like Chinese scholars, uh, sort of organizations around Beijing. Uh, from my own sort of work perspective, it was it was extremely well timed in that I landed there. I think two days later, this report came out two days after that, um, the generative AI like final regulation dropped. And all through that time, I was able to sort of meet and have conversations with some of these Chinese AI 
policy scholars or regulatory scholars and get like very sort of firsthand takes on what they make of the regulation, what they make of this process, um, you know, what I got right or wrong in the report. And so, yeah, it was, it was just from a, from a work perspective and from just like a remembering that all these people, all these things that we read about, yeah, at the end of the day, they are, they are people, they are, they are people that in many ways, like completely uh, mirror us. The, the Chinese AI sort of policy scholars are, are often quite close mirrors of their sort of peers in the U.S., even if we, uh, you know, conceive them to be uh, enemies or rivals or something like that. So work stuff was great. And then just, you know, from a personal level, the chance to be back in Beijing and just like breathe it in, you know, see some friends, like walk the old neighborhoods. I mean, I just I really needed that, like needed to just kind of like re up on on that life over there to to remember why why I do this work at all. And I don't know how to make this point. It's like if I was the Chinese government and I wanted to sort of like influence the next generation of, I don't know, global policymakers to like be less mean to China, what I would try to ensure, like make sure that happens is that they have that same understanding that you do of like that there are human beings who are in China um, who are more similar than different than you and like the the state is not the party um you know like like china is not like the party and that's it and what is fascinating is how they don't get that and they can't it's like that 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 that, that it, it's like like that model of the world is just so foreign that like they can't orient their policymaking around that sort of thing um you know the the, the damage that like the two michaels and the sort of like random, um, uh, you know, arrests of, of, of research assistants and, and what have you is just it makes that so much harder um, to for folks to sort of like fall into and 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 have the understanding that, you know, we've we've talked about over the past 40 minutes, five minutes of like China being this, um, you know, being more complex than just Xi Jinping. And of course, there is Xi Jinping, and we've talked a lot about it on China Talk, and we will continue to. Um, but um, uh, it's just, it's really, it's a really interesting conundrum how the sort of, the, the dominant strategy for influencing the world, which is what America's done, of like giving everyone and their mother a Fulbright Fellowship to come and spend six months here and like have a great time, um, is just not something that China, for all of its global ambitions, um, you know, kind of does to some extent, I think, with... Um, uh, you know, with the developing world, but can't quite grok with the um, uh, with the developed world, I think, to its enormous detriment. Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, they just like can't get out of their own way. Um, you know, I you could trace it to a bunch of different kind of like, uh, right. you know, cultural mores or attitudes or some very specific like Leninist uh, approaches to things. But I guess, yeah, the, the bottom line is right now they are having an extremely hard time just kind of getting out of the way and allowing China to be uh, to be like engaged with in a full sense. You know, obviously, COVID clearly doesn't help with this. Like there have been some external factors that have like uh, made all of these trends worse over time. But they're like sort of the government's un unwillingness to... Uh, to allow for a type of engagement that will include some like downside risk. It will include some reports about, 
you know, Uyghur mass internment that you just, you know, you do not like as a country, you think are very damaging to you as a country, but you cannot have all of the other sort of stabilizing uh, factors in the relationship without opening the door to some of that stuff. And their sort of unwillingness to tolerate that is really getting in the way of um, of them sort of recovering their their national image at a at a very large scale. And um, I think it's 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 too bad. I mean, and, and it um, uh, it's interesting because it it sort of comes from the elites down almost. Is like when you're when you're not going to let New York Times reporters be in China to do reporting, like that limits the type of reporting that they're going to do, and you can't do a human interest story um, of like you know like like your old stories, Matt, of like the noodle maker just trying to get by and or what what have you, or the rise of frisbee in China. Like that doesn't happen. And then so people sit in Washington and they write about U.S.-China tech competition. And like, it's real. I spend most of my time thinking about that. Um, but um, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be in China and get some sort of broader perspective on, um, you know, the country and its relationships to the world. And and the next generation may or may not have that, um, which is uh, heartbreaking and dangerous and dangerous, not in ways that the CCP should like. If uh, my reading of, um, uh, um, of, of of Xi Jinping thought is quite, um, uh, you know, is, is at all accurate. So anyways, it's a real bummer. I'm really glad you got to go. Seemed like a lot of fun. You've got some great photos. Yeah, no, it was. Um, yeah, it was great. I, mean, I was there during like the 10 hottest days in Beijing history. So it was brutal in that sense. But um, yeah, I mean, the city, uh, it's changed. It's the same. You know, it feels way different. It feels it feels just like old times, all that stuff. But it was um yeah, I was very lucky to, to get to go back, and I hope I get to go back more in the future. Matt Sheehan, thanks so much for being part of China Talk.
往上顶，我的座右铭，往上顶，天道酬勤，相信命运在我手心，滴滴几行祝酒醒。老子们铁血，老子敢笃定，他们尖酸，他们是故意，人不如天算，他也是不幸，风雷电闪，我扬眉吐气。啊，看到的路是谁手？看到个剑到最后，我在顶上服侍你对手。